Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we're always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. I'm dealing with a topic that is extremely challenging to, to pass on. And yet, for many of you, I think this has the potential to be invigorating and life-altering because it has to do with confidence in Scripture. Many of you in here, especially Ellerslie students, have a tremendous confidence in the Old Testament and the canonicity of it. And I see no reason why, if you have confidence in the canonicity of the Old Testament, you wouldn't have have struggle or faith in the canonicity of the New Testament. And yet that's one of the key points of attack today. In the postmodern movement in the church, it has been a serious attack and a very focused attack on the credibility and the integrity and the authority of Scripture. And so say you have a very clear understanding of the authority of the Old Testament. Well, what if the integrity of the New Testament is questioned in your mind? You know that it has the same damaging effects? Because the New Testament is of the utmost importance for clarifying the cross of Jesus Christ and how that affects you, and what you should expect out of your life. These are not small things, and so this is not a small message. I've even pondered if I should give a break in the middle of this one, so (laughs) let's let's begin. The 24 elders. Uh, That's a, a mysterious title. If any of you have poked around in Revelation, you might have at least a notion of what that might be talking about, but I'm going to break down uh, some things. First, 24. The number 24 is not the most common number that you would be used to. However, 12 would be. If you study the Old Testament, you see 12 a lot. If you study the New Testament, you see 12 a lot. In the Old Testament, you have 12 tribes. And then the very final uh, collection of books in the Old Testament is known as the 12. And it is the 12 minor prophets. And so you have this concept of a body or a lineage known as the 12, or the 12 uh, that carry the seed. And then you have the 12 witnesses or the 12 prophets. That's just how the number is used in the Old Testament. And then you have the New Testament, then you have the 12 disciples, and then they morph into what we understand as the 12 apostles. And so you understand the number 12, but 24 might not be as familiar of a number. Of course, it's just two 12s. But whereas the number 12 would be the number of heavenly witness. The number 24 would be the same thing, the number of heavenly witness, but doubled. It is like an extra exclamation mark next to it. Sort of like seven is a number of completion in the Bible, but 70 is the number of completion on steroids. And so in a sense, we have the same thing here, 24, the number of heavenly witness, and then an elder. Well, I think most of us have this concept of what an elder is. It's some guy in the church that might pass the offering basket and go to meetings every now and then. And yet the concept of an elder is one who has traversed the road before you. It's someone who has gone before you and actually knows the way. It is a forefather, one who saw it first and bears witness of what he has seen unto others. So this concept of a forefather, I think, is a very unique term for it. That's an elder. And so in Revelation, we have a term, the 24 elders. 
So we'll call them the 24 forefathers, the ones that have gone before and have seen it before we got there. They saw something, and they bear witness to it, and their witness is sure, it is true. Okay, so when you hear the number 24, that might not strike a chord with you, but that's why we have this message, and that's, there's a reason why I'm choosing this as a foundational point for where we're going and understanding the authority of Scripture. The 24 forefathers. Revelation 4. John is seeing something. It's called the Revelation. Well, in chapter 4, it says, And immediately I, John speaking, was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. By the way, what we're about to read is not the easiest thing to understand. And I'm not going to attempt to give you the most full understanding of it. However, there's a lot of stuff in it that matters to us. And behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Uh, by the way, that means twenty-four. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders, twenty-four, sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Mm -hmm. And the first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf or an ox. And the third beast had a face of a man and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor, and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever. And cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Wow. And that's just one chapter. If you notice your notes, we go to chapter 5 as well. However, what we have is we have a throne. And in the midst of this throne, there seems to be these four beasts. Uh, that term came from Wycliffe. In the time when Wycliffe used the translation, he translated them beasts, the term beast didn't mean what it means to us, which is not a positive thing. These are living creatures that, for all practical purposes, are like men, but they're not men. And they're covered with eyes, and they have six wings. They are some form of angelic creature, but to give you the description of what they are is hard. Some people would call them cherubim, but if you know Ezekiel, you'd say, well, cherubim have four wings. Well, cherubim could have six wings. The ones we meet in Ezekiel just happen to have four wings. They have the same faces as the cherubim, which is very interesting. The face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle. However, I'm not going to go out of my way to attempt to figure that mystery out. All we know is they're in the midst of the throne, and around that throne, around it, are 24 seats. And on those 24 seats are 24 elders. And they're witnessing something. And they witness it day and night. It's a constant witness that they see and they behold that which is true the one seated upon the throne. So now we go into Revelation 5. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. 
So now we have the introduction of a book, but it's a sealed book. It's a book that is in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, and it's sealed. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? So there's a book, and this book is sealed. And so the question that is ringing through the heavens is, is there one that is worthy to open this sealed book? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So now, listen closely. We have 24 elders that are sitting around. John is witnessing this. This angel has made this declaration. We have this book that is sealed, and no one can open it. But one of the elders that sits around the throne, one of the 24, it says, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and there to, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And be, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all they that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Whoa! What do you do with that? We have the introduction of a book that is closed, that is sealed. And yet the introduction of one known as a lamb who appears in the midst of them, in the midst of the 24 elders, as one that is slain. And he, by his own shed blood, has done what is necessary to open and unlock the seals of a book. Huh. So let's keep going. The Hebrew Bible. This is going to sound a little strange to some of you. How many books are in the Old Testament? There's 39. Well, that's, that's our Bible. And you could say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the Hebrews have the same exact Bible. It's an exact replica. Our Old Testament and their Old Testament, exactly the same except for a little difference. How they organize the books. You see, they don't have first and second Samuel. They have Samuel. They don't have first and second kings, they have kings. They do not have first and second chronicles, they have chronicles. And they do not have 12 different minor prophets, they have the 12. Which, if you do the math on that, leads to 24 books. It's a replica of our Old Testament, but it's 24 books instead of 39. Now, 
To be honest, I have no problem with us having 39 books. There is no issue with that. However, for this message, it helps for you to know how the Hebrew mind understands things. And John would have reasoned even through the Hebrew mind. In other words, 24 books matters. There's a reason why that number matters in this message. So, the Hebrew Bible, 24. 24 witnesses, 24 elders. The building of the 24 elders, setting up the seats around the throne. Oh, I love this thought. You have a throne, and you have a lamb who was crucified before the foundations of the earth. He's one as if he's slain, but they don't quite understand it all. And these seats are set up from every angle around the throne to see it and to behold. And what do they all testify? The same thing. They see the same thing. But it's almost as if they see men as trees walking. They aren't quite able to see everything. But they witness the same thing. All 24 say the same thing. And what are they all talking about? A lamb who is slain. The building of the 24 elders, setting up the seats around the throne. They sought. They witnessed Jehovah's nature, Jehovah's plan. They bore witness to Jehovah's word. They wrote it down in a book carried along by the Holy Spirit. God sealed their words as his very own. Those are my words, God says. God preserved their words inviolable, unchanging, allowing their humble jots and tittles to bear witness of his glory. Was it written by men? Yes, but it is God's word. It is authoritative as God's very word, though it was in and through the humble pen of men. Moses was the first witness. And if you've ever heard the message canon, you understand why he's the first witness. That's the establishment of authority and the very bedrock of what we understand as the Bible. Canon, the first five books are written by Moses. Moses was the first witness. His authority established before all Israel with the budding of the rod of Aaron and the tabernacle of witness. And he began writing a book, a book that bore witness to the perfect righteousness of God. Now, it's not a book as we would think, perfect bound that folds with a cover. It was more of a scroll, but to them, that's what a book was. So it was a book that bore witness to the perfect righteousness of God. And who wrote after Moses? Joshua. Joshua was the second witness. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but right now, you could just sort of take note to that. Joshua was the second witness, the one who followed Moses. The seats were built by God surrounding his throne so that every angle of his glory might be made clear. Then a man was chosen to see. So the seat is put there. And then he sticks a man in it and says, do you see it? And what does the man do? He sees it and he writes it down. And when he saw, he wrote it down. Each book bearing witness, each book seeing the same thing. A lamb as if slain in the midst of a throne. Each book seeing it from a different vantage, but seeing the same fire, the same rainbow, the same crystal sea, the same throng, the same glory. The witness of Judges, the witness of Ruth, the witness of Samuel, the witness of Kings, the witness of Chronicles, the witness of Ezra, the witness of Nehemiah, the witness of Esther, the witness of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Treasar, the Twelve. Twenty-four elders. Twenty-four that sought, twenty-four that testify of a lamb and his inexplicable sufferings. 24 that witness this one's glory. 24 that can say, don't weep, John. 
For there is indeed one who can open the seals of the book that is sealed. What do they all know? There is one. He's in the midst of the throne. They believed in the Messiah even before he came. They were saved by faith in the one that stood in the midst of the throne. They believed. So when John begins to weep, one of the elders says, John, do not weep. There is one who can open the seals. The 24 have seen. They bear witness, and now they wait. For century after century they wait, longing to see what they have witnessed beforehand made manifest, longing to see the seals of the book unlocked, the gates opened, that they, along with all the others who have believed the words of this prophecy, may enter into the city whose foundation is God. Then after the last witness, the Treasar has taken its seat about the throne, and silence has reigned for 400 years. Suddenly, he comes comes, the one that they witnessed, the one that they saw. They all saw the same, and they all witnessed to the same. They all in perfect agreement say, it is he. The Jews obviously missed it, but the scriptures didn't. The elders declare it clearly. This is the one we witnessed. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration that we talked about last week? Who came to the Mount of Transfiguration? The law and the prophets. The elders sent their witness from the law and the prophets to stand on the high mountain and proclaim, this is the one we saw in all his glory. This is the one we witnessed. They gave testimony. The Old Testament gave testimony that Jesus was he. The construction of a book, a book whose architect and builder is God. Now, if if you're sharp, you'd say, well, it wasn't a book that God is building. It's a city whose builder and architect is God. Well, we might end up finding out that a book and a city turn out to be fairly similar. You see, God is what is being constructed. God is constructing a picture of his glory. You see, we are called his body. And so therefore, when he's growing up as a church, we are his body, we are his dwelling place. And so what we become is the very framework of a city, the city in which God lives. But before the city came the book, the book whose architect and builder is God. This is very interesting but because Job, according to many scholars, they would think Job was actually before Moses. However, not in the flow of of scripture. Moses is the first five books, and Job even has credibility because he matches with Moses. And listen to what Job says. Now, Job, by the way, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced Yob, and Yob means hated and despised. Don't you feel bad for that guy when he was born and his mom pinches his cheek and goes, oh, you're so cute. You're hated and despised. What a strange name to get, and he's from the land of Uts, U-Z, Uts, You know what Utz means? The place of wood. Hated and despised, the place of wood. And it's before Moses. Isn't that a fascinating statement? And this is what he says. Job 19 says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. What an interesting statement. That my words were now written. 
This man is the suffering man, and the suffering man wishes that his words were written. Fascinating. It's a book, but it's not a book that Moses desired just to write. God told him to write it. Write down these words, says God. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. And the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. You know, it's interesting that Moses' books came to an end. It says that Moses finished writing. It's just sort of a strange statement that Moses finished writing. Now, all of us say, oh, the book has just begun. However, Moses finished. And that's important because what I'm going to begin to do is lay a foundation for how we as Christians in the New Covenant understand that passageway from the 24 Old Testament books into the New Testament. Why is there authority given? We understand Jesus has authority. So some people have their red-letter Bible, and they say, well, we only believe the words of Jesus. So those are authoritative. But all the words, you know, of Paul and, and Peter, I mean, they're just men. I mean, I believe Jesus, I believe Jesus so when he talks, but I, all these other things, I don't know. You will be the most crooked and confused Christian on earth if you live that way. The finishing of the book, look at the subtitle, The Beginning of Another. You see, there in the Old Testament, there's this pattern of Moses, which is the beginning, the first, coming to a close. And then the beginning, the passing off of the book. The book isn't discarded. The book is passed off. It's entrusted. It's actually set in the Ark of Covenant, in the side of the Ark of Covenant. It's given, in a sense, to Joshua. The finishing of the book, the beginning of another. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished. So he did not stop writing until they were finished, which is somewhat of a challenge for those of us to say, who wrote the final words of Deuteronomy? Because how in the world does it say Moses died? And how's Moses writing that? Good old classic questions. Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. So here's the book, Joshua. Here it is. Take it. And where is he supposed to stick it? In the side of the ark. You know what the ark is? It's the throne. It's like literally around the throne. Put this around the throne. I'm just saying. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So what we see with Joshua is not a neglect of what Moses wrote, but an establishment of what Moses wrote. Moses wrote the pattern. He saw it. He looked into the land. He says, this is where you're headed. He witnessed it. He saw it. But he couldn't go there. And so he passed off that book, and Joshua didn't neglect the book, but fulfilled the book. The principle of continuity. From Moses unto Joshua, you see a passing off. Moses finishes a book, and then he hands off this book. There seems to be a sacred handoff. It's what we'll call the principle of continuity. From the old covenant unto the new covenant, there's a handoff. And it's a handoff from the old to the new. Remember Moses and Elijah show up in the Mount of Transfiguration? In a sense, they're handing off something. To who? To Yeshua. 
Joshua. It's the same name. Jesus and Joshua, the same exact name. Old covenant unto the one that follows, the second. From wilderness unto promised land. The wilderness has something. They have the law. But they're supposed to hand it off, and they hand it off to Joshua. When Joshua has it, what does he do? Hang out at the Jordan River and just bathe for the rest of his life? No, he goes in and takes the land of promise. You see, there's a transition from Moses unto Joshua, and then Joshua fulfills all the promise. The law and the prophets, or Moses, conclude and exhort and establish and empower the book that follows, Joshua. Why does Joshua have credibility? Because Moses gave authority to Joshua. Moses said, the one that follows me will be your leader. He anointed Joshua to lead. So Moses' endorsement is what gives us confidence in Joshua's leadership. However, the book that follows, or Joshua, the new covenant, pays honor to the law and the prophets, the old covenant, before him and fulfills all his words. So you know that when Moses was done, he didn't look that impressive? What had he accomplished? Well, he'd gotten them out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago, though. The guy just sort of waned in his latter days and then just sort of dies. He can't even take in the people of Israel. So what is he shown when he finally dies? Eh, you know what? I hope it all works. What does Joshua do? He proves and gives credence to all that Moses said and shows, you know, the one that went before me, everything he said was true. Joshua actually emboldens and ennobles the one that went before him. He makes Moses look really good. However, you trust Joshua because of Moses, but then you think highly of Moses because of Joshua. That's important, by the way. I just gave you a critical tool. The book that follows the new covenant pays honor to the law and the prophets, the old covenant, before him and fulfills all his words. So listen to what it says in Joshua 11. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. So who was the one that witnessed what needed to be taken? The land, the measurements of the land from the river Jordan, uh, river Euphrates to the great sea. It was Moses that saw it, but Joshua took it. So it says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. When we're hanging out in the Old Testament here, you may not be used to this, but I want you to start thinking Jesus. Because all of the Old Testament is useful to show us what the Old Testament witnesses to. It witnesses to the one in the midst of the throne. It witnesses to that lamb. Always. Everything in the Old Testament is focused towards that throne and towards the one in the midst of that throne. And right here, what we see is the witness that is sitting around the throne is saying, that's right, that is what I saw. And Joshua took the land. When Moses dies, he appears a failure. His people have none of the promises realized. They esteem the land, but they have not yet eaten of its fruit. But Moses has left them a vision of a good land and a promise that surely the lamb that was slain is able to open the sealed book. You know that that land of promise is sealed to Moses? He can't go in it. It's sealed. But who's able to go into it? Joshua. 
And so for Moses, he has the vision of the good land and a promise that surely the lamb that was slain is able to open the sealed book. Then when Joshua walks in the words, promises, exhortation, and blessing of Moses, he proves triumphant, takes the land, conquers the enemy, and tastes of the good fruit that Moses had, indeed declared God was able to give them to them that believe. Joshua's authority is authenticated by Moses. Joshua is proven to be of the same spirit as the law and the prophets before him because he perfectly fulfills everything Moses said and demonstrates power and authority over all the powers of the land of Canaan. What I just gave you is one of the key understandings of how the New Testament logic flows. See, Jesus is as Joshua. And it says Joshua is proven to be of the same spirit as the law and the prophets before him. Well, so was Jesus. The law and the prophets pay tribute to him. Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration are literally declaring, this is he. Because he perfectly fulfills everything Moses said and demonstrates the power and authority over all the powers of the land of Canaan. But more importantly, Joshua, listen to this, authenticates the authority of Moses, bearing witness to the truthfulness, faithfulness, and integrity of his words, his prophecy, and his law. You know what Jesus makes clear? The Old Testament is a supernatural book because everything it said was fulfilled in one man. It's impossible, and yet it was done. And so what Jesus does is actually authenticates the Old Testament. When you see Jesus, you actually have a whole new confidence in the Old Covenant. You're like, wow, that is amazing. You mean all those words were written beforehand some thousands of years earlier, and they are all fulfilled in Jesus? That's right. They all witnessed Jesus even before he came in the flesh and did the work of the Lamb. Joshua upholds the word of Moses, and therefore in breaking the seals that Moses could not break, he accomplishes something even greater. And that which follows Moses is considered greater than Moses himself. The principle of the bridegroom's friend. When the husband comes, the friend must decrease. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist is very similar to Moses. Actually, he's termed Elijah. There's a pattern in the Old Testament of one that comes before and then he passes off everything he has to the one after him. And we'll call it, because in the Gospels, it's called the friend of the bridegroom. Josh, I'm sorry, John the Baptist was a friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom is the one that when a man is going to get married, he goes away to prepare a place. And he entrusts his bride to his dearest friend, his most trustworthy friend. But when that bridegroom returns, wouldn't it be awkward if the friend says, no, she's my wife. Well, that's awkward. That's strange. No, the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom must get out of the way. He's like, I must decrease. It's not about me. I was only here for a purpose. I was only here to witness, to make sure she was safe and she was pure. But now that the bridegroom has come, I step back. Okay, so we'll call this the principle of the bridegroom's friend. When the husband comes, the friend must decrease. So let's look at the friend in Scripture. Moses unto Joshua. You see, Moses is a big guy in Scripture. But guess what? Joshua accomplished something even greater. Joshua walked in the fulfillment of promise. Elijah unto Elisha. You know that most of us would think that Elijah is the most impressive prophet in the Old Testament? And did you know that at his parting, which, by the way, was in the wilderness, just as Moses' parting was in the wilderness, when before he parted, he said unto Elisha, Ask, ask me anything, and I will give it to you before I part. And Elisha asked the strangest, most audacious thing maybe ever has been asked on earth up to that point. 
He says, I want a double portion of what you have. Uh, a double portion of what Elijah has? Doesn't he know who he's talking to? Elijah, the one who called down fire from heaven, the one who prayed and the heavens were sealed for three years? Ah, uh, Elijah, boy, that was a big mistake. You know what even Elijah says? Uh, you've asked a hard thing. Even Elijah knows that. But he says, if you see me being taken up, you will know that you've received what you asked for. So one of the key lines in scripture is, and Elisha saw it. You know that Elisha had exactly double, or maybe I should say it this way. He had double the, the miracles in scripture of Elijah, minus one. What does that bother you? Minus one? So Elisha dies, and he's short one miracle from being exactly double the miracles of Elijah. And some guys are carrying around a dead body, and they didn't know where to throw it, so they threw it in Elisha's tomb. And guess what happens? The guy pops back to life. And God goes, double. <laughs> double. The one who follows the friend has double. There is something very special. You know in the New Covenant it says we have better promises? We don't have a promised land, which by the way is pretty impressive. We have better promises. The one who follows, guess what the disciples said at the Mount of Olives? They saw it. They saw him being taken up. They saw the one that preceded them being taken up. It's not a small thing. John the Baptist unto Jesus the friend must decrease. Moses and Elijah unto Jesus. The new covenant is a greater covenant. Can't help it. It is. It is a greater covenant. Doesn't mean we kick the old covenant. The old covenant is a foundation. The law and the prophets unto Jesus. The law and the prophets give testimony to someone who has come and fulfills everything they've seen. The 24 elders unto Jesus. 1 Peter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. So Peter's talking to believers. You see, we didn't get a chance to witness the things that the Old Testament prophets got a chance to see. Most of us can't say like Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Most of us can't say that we were there at the cross standing there beholding it in actual reality. Most of us can't say that we witnessed the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his side and his feet. We didn't put our finger in it. It says, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 24 elders. What did the prophets do? They're sitting around the throne staring, and they're trying to look into it and discern what it means because they see the lamb as if he were slain. They see the sufferings. But they don't understand when, they don't understand how, they don't understand it all. So they looked into it beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. The things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Peter's saying, don't you realize what you have? 
Don't you realize what you have? The 24 elders sat around longing. The books of the old covenant literally longed to look into what you get to see. But they couldn't see it fully. They saw it, but they couldn't fully understand it. Whereas you have full access, not to just the exterior, the circle around the throne, but into the midst of it. You get to understand. You enter in and through the lamb, in and through his wounds. You're that close. Mount Abram, the vision of Moses. So God tells Moses, he goes, go up into Mount Abram, to Mount Nemo, to Mount Pisgah. It's Pisgah, sorry. It's a hard word to say. Very specific spot that Moses is supposed to go. Why? Well, it overlooks something. It overlooks the promise. It overlooks the land that God has given to his people. And so Moses is told to go to a very, very specific spot. And the Lord spoke unto Moses that selfsame day, saying, get thee up into this mountain, Abram, and unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, this over against Jericho, and behold, the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for a possession, die in the mount whither thou goes up. Yeah, so go up there and, and die. It's really strange. When Moses died, he was not weak. He was not showing the signs of age, but he could not enter. It was time for the children of Israel to enter, but he was locked out. He could not go in. What he symbolized was law. And law cannot carry Israel in. Law cannot get you into the promise. The second witness must. The one who follows Moses is the only one who can bring you in. So Abram means the other side. Nebo, the prophet, and Pisgah, the cleft. Isn't that interesting? The other side. It's not the side you want to be on. It's the other side. You're staring longingly into it, but you can't get in. The seals seal it shut. The book is shut to you. Abram, Nebo, Pisgah. The place from which the prophet sees Unable to touch it, hidden in the cleft, lest he be destroyed. Seeing but the backside of God's purpose, not fully understanding, but seeing that which is to come. The vision from the other side of the Jordan. See, Moses sees the backside. We see face to face. The new covenant gives you face to face clarity. The old covenant gives you men as trees walking. Sorry, that's, that's a New Testament thing about healing eyes sight. But it's still, it works here. Joshua, translated Yehoshua, or as you get into the latter days, to protect people from ever accidentally saying the holy, unspeakable name of God, which is woven right into the fabric of this name, they say Yeshua, and Jesus was named Yeshua. Technically, that is his name. We translate it as Jesus. It says the same thing. We're meaning the same thing, and we're not trouncing upon his name by saying it that way. But what it means is the I am because that's what Jehovah means, saves. So it's Jehovah saves, or the I am saves, or he is, because that's what we would mean when we say it. He is. And what is he? He's salvation. He is salvation. Moses isn't. Joshua is. Yeshua is salvation. You see, you see it. You esteem the land. You esteem the promise, but you can't enter in. So what does Moses see? Moses sees the inheritance. 
He sees what Joshua will take. He sees the promise. He beholds the authority given the son of Nun. You know what Nun means? Son of Nun, that's Joshua. He's called the son of Nun. Nun means the seed. Jesus is the son of the seed. He is the offspring of David. He is the one that literally is the outflow of the tribes. He is the Messiah. Moses sees it. But he himself cannot but witness the one who does the taking of the promise. He's not the one that takes the promise. He witnesses it. He's merely an elder. So what does Moses see? He sees a lamb slain in the midst of the throne. He sees God's salvation. He sees Yeshua. Moses spoke of Jesus. Even Jesus says that. The one he spoke of was me. Moses is speaking of Jesus? How how does that work? Well, he saw it. You're like, he only saw land. He saw the promise fulfilled, and he saw the one who would bring you into the promise. You see, he saw it. He witnessed it. He witnessed it in a type. He witnessed it in a form. He didn't fully understand it, but he saw it, and when it happened, he understood it. He's like, I see it now. I am fully healed. What healed him? Jesus. Jesus, when applied to Moses, causes Moses to see. I understand now. Moses, the first five books of Moses now make sense that you have Jesus. All the 24 witnesses in the Old Testament suddenly jump up and down and they go, I see it. I understand now. But Jesus had to come. He had to die. And then when he rose again, the eyes were opened. And suddenly the 24 elders beheld. They saw it clearly. So east of the Jordan, there seems to be two descriptions of direction here. We have a Jordan River. And Moses sees over the Jordan River into the land of promise. And so east of the Jordan is the side you don't really want to be on. That's the wilderness side. That's where the law is given. That's where Moses is stuck. You see, he's blocked in. He's locked in. The territory of the friend. What you'll notice is that Moses was in the wilderness. He died in the wilderness. Elisha... I'm sorry, Elijah was in the wilderness when he went up in his whirlwind and the mantle fell onto Elisha. And Elijah, the, Elisha, the first miracle he did was take Elijah's mantle, strike the waters of the Jordan and cross it. And then John the Baptist, where did John the Baptist do his preaching? In the wilderness. The friend seems to be on the east side of the Jordan. But the one that follows the friend is the one that enters into the land of promise. So the west of the Jordan, it's the territory of promise. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. So what do we have in between? We have a strange river. It's, it's something of very, very enormous importance in Scripture. And we oftentimes just sort of pass over, like, well, we just need to get across this Jordan. But the Jordan itself represents something. Look at this. I say that which separates the covenants or the books. What we have in the Old Testament is we have a picture of that which separates Moses from the second. We have two books. We call them one. It's called the Bible. But it's broken up into two books. You have the first and you have the second. You have the old and you have the new. What separates down the middle? There's a Jordan River. There's a river that separates. Yarad is the verb from which the word Jordan comes. To come down is what it means. 
to be poured out, to descend, to have the revelation come down. Moses couldn't see. He couldn't cross the Jordan. But the Jordan is symbolic of the coming down. Jesus had to come down. And, if you want to further understand it, the Spirit had to come down after Jesus. Yaradain actually is Jordan. That's our word. It means the outpour, the descendant, the one coming down. That is the key. It's Yeshua. It's Jesus. And at that Jordan River, we see the ability suddenly open up to the people of Israel. Those that are locked out are able to enter in. That Yardane becomes the passageway. He has come. He has done it. He is part of the waters. Come over. Come over into the land of promise. That which the 24 elders can only see from the high hill of Pigsa. Those that enter into Joshua's rule and command, walk in and take the land. The authority of the New Testament, the 24 on the west side of the Jordan. What? Now, remember what we've been talking about? We've been talking about the 24. We've been talking about the 24 that surround the throne. In the Old Testament, there's 24 books. I know we call it 39, but... There's 24. That's another way of looking at it. There's nothing wrong with our 39. But 24. Have you ever looked at the New Testament? Four Gospels is one, plus 23 more books. What does that equal? 24. 24. 24. You see, there's a witness on the other side of the Jordan, too. And the Old Testament sets us up for that witness. You see, there is one that will come. And the 24 before it see what it will look like. They, they see the vision. But the second 24 will enunciate everything about the one that came. The authority of the New Testament, the 24 on the west side of the Jordan. A house without a foundation, an exercise in demonstrating need. Let's imagine that we have a house and, well... Let's imagine we don't have walls, we don't have a foundation, because we can't have walls because there's nothing to hold them up. But we have all the materials that make a house, and we still call it a house because that's all we know. This is our house. So imagine that we have a couch, because what are you supposed to have in a couch? For comfort, you need a couch. And so what has God given you? He's given you a couch. What I'm likening this to is this is what the old covenant has given the people of Israel. He has given them an amazing bounty and supply. He has given them a couch for comfort, and here's a couch for comfort. Here's a chimney for the demonstration of fire. Here's a kitchen sink for all that living water that you need. Here's a gas stove for hospitality and feeding the multitudes. Here's a window to see clearly to discern the weather, and here's an air conditioner for temperance. Here's a shower for cleanliness. Uh, God... Uh, when it rains, I sit on my couch and I get soaked. It's not very comfortable. Uh, my chimney doesn't seem to show any smoke. Uh, there's like no fire. Just a chimney doesn't create fire. I have a kitchen sink, but I turn on the faucet and nothing comes out. It's not hooked up to water. I have a gas stove, but there's no gas supplied to it. I have a window, but there's 
There's no frame for the window. It just sort of flops in and breaks. I have an air conditioner, but I have no electricity. I have a shower, but again, no plumbing. What does that lead you to? A little bit of frustration, doesn't it? And God says, you needing something down there? Like, no, no, got it. We got it. We got it all figured out. You prop up your window and your couch and sleep underneath it. You see, we have tried to make a makeshift instead of recognizing that the old covenant leads us to the Jordan and causes us to stare in longingly to say, I wish this couch could actually be comfortable. I wish my shower could actually get me clean. But the law can't supply. It brings us there to the edge, but it brings us there to show us our need. We are in need of something. We need a foundation. We need a foundation on which walls can be built and therefore a roof can be established. We need a house. And as a result, we are in frustration and our need has been proven us. The law is a schoolmaster, it says, which leads us to Christ. The law is merely showing us our need. Does that mean the Jews didn't have anything? No, they had the promises. They had the promised land. They had literally the ability to say, in our lineage comes the Messiah. They have so much. And yet, they don't have the power to make it all function. The mystery. Why don't these work? They are amazing, but they don't function as they ought. The story of the gates. Pearly and perfect, yet locked. If you've ever studied the New Jerusalem, there's gates on the New Jerusalem. There's 12. It's this perfect square, and it's a massive square. I remember someone giving me some measurements once because I am not exactly sure what, I think it's 12,000 stadia. That really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I remember someone saying, well, that's about 2,000 miles. I don't know if that's true or not. However, that's fairly big. And it goes 2,000 miles this way, 2,000 miles this way, 2,000 miles this way. I mean, that, that's the most intriguing to me. 2,000 miles up? It's a square. It's this perfect square built in the pattern of 12s, ironically. And on one side, it has three gates. Another side, three, three, and three. There's 12 gates around the outside. However, what's inside is everything you need. Salvation, light and understanding, wisdom, power. Everything that God is, but we're locked out. The gates are locked. How frustrating is that? To have a witness of the city and to know what the city look, looks like. To know everything about that city but not be able to enter in. What do you think Moses felt like? If there was one guy that appreciated the value of the land of promise more than any other, it was probably Moses. And yet he couldn't go in. So you know those gates are made of solid pearls? That's what it says. That's where the term pearly gates comes from. They are pearl gates. So they're pearly and perfect, yet there's one problem. They're locked. So let's go through our locked gates. Now, there's a lot more of these. I just picked five locked gates just to show you how the law works. The law leads you to the gate, but you can't get in. You have the gate. The Jews have the gate. They own the gate if you want to even look at it that way. However, it doesn't work for them because a gate truly is supposed to open. Locked gate number one. The Jews received a revelation, and that is that God is. He says, I am that I am. So the revelation is he is. But it also, with every revelation of God, comes a counter-revelation that leaves us with a locked gate. He says, I am. 
And what else comes with it? You are not. You see, you are not as you ought to be. I am. And unless you're like me, we can have no fellowship. So the law states, unless you are as he is, you will be cut off. Uh, uh, that doesn't leave us a lot of hope, does it? It leads us right to the edge of the Jordan with a massive view of God. Wow, he is big, but it doesn't let us in. Locked gate number two, the revelation that he is righteousness. The revelation of our unrighteousness. When you see his righteousness, the Ten Commandments, you see his law, what do you find? That's not me. He's righteous, I am not. The law states, unless you bear perfect conformity unto his law, you will be condemned. The just penalty of breaking even the smallest aspect of the law of God is eternal condemnation. Ah, uh, how are we doing? Not very good. You see, the law doesn't let us in. Locked gate number three. The revelation is he is holy. So we already know he is, but now we're finding out that he's righteous. Now we're finding out that he's holy. He's holy, holy holiness. The revelation also comes that we are unholy. And a better way of saying that is we're unholy, unholy, unholiness. We are completely other than God. And so the law states, unless you bear evidence of his perfect nature, you are forever blocked from his presence. Locked gate number four. The revelation he is without lie. He is unmixed. He is perfectly pure, always true. But what comes with that is the revelation that we are false and full of mixture. You can't be false. You can't tell even the slightest lie. He is truth, and if you want to have fellowship with him, you must be truth. So the law states, unless you are without sin, without guile, without deceit, you can have no fellowship with the one who is truth. Ah. Oh. You see, we've been led to the Jordan with the law. And we get up on a high mountain and we esteem it, but we can't perform it. That's, that's Romans chapter 7, by the way. Romans chapter 7 is Paul saying, I see it. I see the law and I esteem it. But there's nothing inside of my pockets that will enable me to enter in. I'm stuck on the high hill of Pigsa. Who can save me from this situation? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the testimony of all the eldership throughout history. There is one who will save. And even those that are seeing the high righteousness and the high holiness of God still know that that book will be unlocked. There is one who will come. My salvation rests in him, not in my own righteousness. My salvation is found when I believe in his righteousness. That's what all of them believed. Yet they didn't get the chance to see it with their own eyes and enter into that land of promise for themselves. The law states, unless you are without sin, without guile, without deceit, you can have no fellowship with the one who is truth. Locked gate number five. The revelation is he is faithful. And what comes with that? Well, the revelation that we are adulterers. We are unfaithful. The law states, unless you are marked by perfect faith, and you could say it this way, perfect loyalty, perfect confidence, perfect agreement with God always. Unwavering belief and absolute trust, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Standard's too high for us, isn't it? We're swallowed up in our inability. We can't do it. But what is the law doing? The law is showing us our weakness. It's leading us to the Jordan. So if there's an ache inside of us, is there anything that can be done for our salvation? What do the 24 all agree on? 
I see one in the midst of the throne. It's, it appears as if he's slain, that he's suffered. I, I can't make it totally out, but he can open the book. Who's the one that told John? It was an elder. And the elder said, there is one who has opened the book. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he has done it. There is one who can unlock the Jordan rivers, who can part them, who can enable those of us that see the high and holy mountain of God and tremble before its righteousness. There is one who has enabled us to climb that high and holy hill. Unlocking the gates. You know, that's the gospel. When we give the gospel, what are we saying? There's a key. There's a key. When we give the gospel to the Jews, what are we saying? There's a key for that gate. There's a key for that gate. You weren't just shown the gate so that you could esteem the gate and fall down and worship a pearl. You were given that gate to show you that you can't open it. But you were given the witness of the 24 so that you would know there was one who is coming who will unlock it. The key has come. The way in has arrived. This is known as the gospel of the kingdom. Unlocked gate number one. Who was entrusted with this key? The apostles. The apostles were given the key and told to go and tell others. Go into all the world and preach it. Let them know that there's a key. Unlocked gate number one, adding the foundation of Jesus Christ. You see, when you do not have the foundation, those gates are still locked. And one of the ways that I've tried to envision this this week, because Jesus is called the foundation in the New Testament. He's the rock. He's the chief cornerstone. And what is needed in this city is a foundation. But that foundation, whose architect and builder, is God. It's a city built by God, but built on God. And when you have Jesus underlaying those gates, it's almost like that foundation comes up and clunk, clicks into that gate and removes the impediment. And suddenly you go up to that gate and it's unlocked. The first time it's been unlocked, but what did you need? You needed that which was before it to click into it. The foundation needed to come. Doesn't it sound strange that a foundation would come after gates? Well, that's how you misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus came before the gates. The one who is before has now taken on flesh and demonstrated that work. But he's the foundation. He's always been the foundation. Add in the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is. So remember what the statement is? He is and we're not. What does the gospel say? He is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He will make us like himself. You can't do it. But he is. He is the one who will do it. Unlocked gate number two, adding the foundation of Jesus Christ. Remember what that gate said? It said, he is, our right, you know, he is righteousness. And suddenly it leaves you, unless you are perfectly righteous, you could have no place. Well, what does the gospel say? He is our righteousness. It goes from the fact that he is righteousness to he is our righteousness. What do you think the name Jesus even means? He is our salvation. He's the one who's done it. He he is the one who does it. He is our righteousness, our way into the Father. Unlock gate number three, adding the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is our sanctifier, the one who makes us holy. You need to be holy, but you can't make yourself holy. What do you need? You need him to make you holy. 
unlocked gate number four, right in the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is our purifier, the one who cleanses us from all sin. Somehow, you need to be without sin. So he is your righteousness, and then he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just cloak you, but then he purges you. He cleanses you. He washes you. Unlocked gate number five, adding the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is our faith. It's not a fun, funny statement. He is our faith. You could say he is our faithfulness. But you know that your faith has to be perfect? His faith is perfect. And when our imperfect faith turns to him with simple childlike faith, his faith is perfect for us. He is our faith. The one who has done it has performed the promises and accomplished our redemption. He was perfectly faithful. Our confidence is not in our perfect faithfulness. It's in his perfect faithfulness. He is perfectly faithful. He is faithful and true. He is our sanctifier. He is our redeemer. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is everything that we need for salvation. And as his name so aptly states, Jesus means, I am saves. He is my salvation. The 24 that follow unlock the 24 that proceed. Now this is a great mystery, if I was to sound like a New Testament writer. This is a great mystery. But the mystery in which I speak, the great mystery is this. You have the 24 elders and they see it. And they see it before the apostles see it. And yet, what the apostles see is the key that unlocks what the 24 elders saw. The greatest proof of the New Testament is in this fact. What I'm about to tell you is so pithy and important. For you recognize the reason it is so powerful, what we have in the New Testament, is because before we had Jesus, and before we had the 24 of the New Testament, we did not understand the old. We saw it. We tried to guess at it. The Jews guessed and many of them missed. Jesus unlocked it. And suddenly you see it with perfect clarity. It's about him. We hear about a lamb as if he were slain. We know exactly what it's talking about. Why? Because you're looking at it from the west side of the Jordan. When you have the west side of the Jordan, you understand what Moses was talking about. But when all you have is Moses, you don't understand there's a veil that still hangs over your face. You do not see. You cannot fully comprehend. And when Jesus came, they killed him. However, when you see the 24 on the west side of the Jordan, you see and understand the 24 on the east side. The 24 that follow unlock the 24 that proceed. And therein lies their greatest validation of the New Testament. For that which is second has become the foundation. What is the foundation of the New Jerusalem? Do you guys know? There are 12 enormous foundations and they undergird the gates you know the gates rest upon something and you could say well the foundation is christ yeah that's true but you know that the apostles names are upon the foundation the apostles have the foundation for that which unlocks the gates that's amazing what follows moses but the 24 chapters of yeshua it just happens to be 24 chapters in Joshua. I think that's pretty amazing. The fulfillment of promise follows the prophecy. 
And the fulfillment is greater than the promise, just as the treasure is greater than the witness of the treasure map. We love treasure maps, but how much more valuable is the treasure? The treasure map is there to pay witness to the way. But when you have the way, you have the treasure. And those that have the treasure have something better than the treasure map. Would you agree? And the 24 on the west side of the Jordan in the New Covenant give you the treasure. The 24 on the east side show you the map to the treasure. Jesus, the foundation of the church. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So who is the foundation? Jesus Christ. The foundation of a habitation of God. So this is about the, well, we'll just read it in Ephesians 2. Wherefore, remember that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man. You see, Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is two he takes two and makes them one. You could say Jew and Gentile. You could say those on one side, the east, and those on the west. He ties them together, and we call it the Bible. He is the one that literally ties all of the witness together. For to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints. So he starts talking about citizenship. You see, there's this city that is hinted at. All throughout the Bible, there's this city. And it's a place in which God lives. And it's a city. And it says but fellow citizens, those are people that live in a city with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. The four-square city, the new Jerusalem, in which the Lamb is the light. This is... One of the most beautiful things. I love reading this. I, I was trying to cut this down, and I was thinking, you know what? I'm just going to read it. It's that good. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. The gates have the names of the twelve tribes upon them. 
on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 140 and four cubits. Again, a measurement of twelves. According to the measure of a man, that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear crystal. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third of chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every single, several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of, the, of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. The New Jerusalem. For he, Abraham, looked for a city who hath found, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, Abraham was looking for something. He was a witness to something. He sought, but he couldn't see it clearly. The new name of the city. You know, we call it the New Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 48, it talks about this same city. And it talks about these same gates. But it doesn't yet have a knowledge of the foundations. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel. Three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, one gate of Levi on the, at the east side. Three gates, and, on the, and the gate of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan, and at the south side, three gates. One gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Zebulun at the west side, three gates. One gate of Gad, one gate of Asher, one gate of Naphtali, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. You know, this city actually has a name, and it's a Jewish name that is Jehovah Shammah. And it means the Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah, the I am is there. He is in it. He is there. I am, it could mean this, I am herein. This is where I live. I am here. Isn't that amazing? That's what the name of the city will be. The I am is there. The I am is in there. He's in there. He's in there. The I am is in there. That's what the name of the city shall be. And what you just saw in Revelation is exactly that. Who's inside the city? There's no need of a son. Who's inside that city? The I am. Way back in Ezekiel, it's saying this is the city of God that will be built. How is it built? It needed its foundation. It needed its foundation whose chief cornerstone was Jesus Christ. You see, Ezekiel could see, but he couldn't see clearly. Abraham could see. Moses could see. They could see, but they couldn't make it out fully. But Jesus has come. And now the city opens up. And we understand what this means. And the fact that this ironically is the New Testament and the New Covenant is that much more astounding. What they were seeing was the gospel. What were they seeing? Uh, he's going to be in there. In where? In the city? Well, who's the city? Well, it's us. We're the city. That's the gospel. And they didn't understand it in the Old Covenant. They're like, what? 
What does it mean? They wanted to look into it, but they couldn't understand it. And then Paul strolls on the scene and says, hey, guys, I got a key for you. It's called the mystery of godliness. Let me explain. The mystery hidden for ages and generations is revealed. Whereof, says Paul, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid for, from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is that mystery? It says it right here. Which is Christ in you. Jehovah Shammah. The hope of glory. You see, God's glory will be revealed. How is he going to reveal it? He is going to make us his building. He is going to make us his habitation. We become the new Jerusalem. What did it say? It said, this is the bride. Let me show you the bride. We are that bride. Built upon the apostles with the gates of the old covenant there. You see, we have understanding into this righteousness, into this blazing holiness. They saw something, and what they saw was true and right. But what they needed was Jesus. What they needed still followed. And so they, to be saved, put their faith in the one to come, the Messiah is what they referred to him as. We know that Messiah. That Messiah has been proven and tested against all the 24 elders. And all the 24 elders have voted and said yes and amen. This is he. This is he. This is the one we saw. And then the witness of the 24 on the west side of the Jordan have said, we all witnessed him. We were eyewitnesses of that majesty. The credibility of the new covenant flows out of that foundation of the apostles. They had an apostleship, and yet it was for a season. Just as Moses' book ended, so does theirs. You see, it is those that witnessed, those that saw. Paul, even in his argument, says, I witnessed Jesus Christ, and I witnessed his resurrection. What? Paul? You know, it's an interesting thought to think that all Jews, all male Jews, for the Feast of Pentecost would have come to Jerusalem. We, were, we as staff were talking about that the other day. I was like, huh, that's an interesting thought. So who would have been there? Paul. Isn't it an amazing thought to think of Paul maybe being one of the ones hurling insults at Jesus on the cross? He witnessed. And then he witnessed the resurrected Christ on his way to Damascus when he was knocked off his horse. These were the men that were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus Christ. They saw him. They beheld him. They knew him. And they testified of him. And their testimony is sure. Just as Joshua's is. You didn't question Joshua when Moses anointed him. And we do not question that testimony which was given us. The 24 that have been entrusted to us. Those 24 were not randomly chosen. They were not picked just by gray-headed men. The entire church and church history has recognized them. And there hasn't been argument about it. The reason we had councils to declare which ones they were was because people were trying to creep in to corrupt it. So it was declared, these are the 24 and none other. These are the witness on the west side of the Jordan. The proof is in the message. You see, the proof of the New Testament is in its message. It unlocks the gates and invites the Gentiles into a city known as God is herein. The apostles carried the message that unlocked the gates of the city. They carry the key that opens up the Old Testament gates. The gates of the city, they are opened by Christ. This scripture will now have a whole new appreciation to you. 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates. O Jews, lift up your heads. Do you see it? Do you see the witness? Do you see the fulfillment in Christ? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Where is he going to come? He's going to come in. Jehovah Shammah. He will be inside you. Lift up your head, O ye gates. See your Redeemer, for he liveth. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And he went to battle on that cross, and he decimated the powers of the devil. He crushed the head of the serpent. The Lord of hosts is his name. And he stands in the midst of a throne as one who was slain, one who has suffered. But yet, you have to admit, though he appears to have suffered and is slain, he lives. And he can unlock that book. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought, not just the Jews, but the gates of the Jews that they protected have been opened unto us. And now they will be opened continually. The way of Christ has been opened for us, the Gentiles, to enter in through the gates. The books. See, I emphasize that S there. We don't just have one book. It's not just the book of the law. There's, there's another 24. The books. In Daniel, it says, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Speaking of God on his throne. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set. Uh-oh. And the books were opened. Oh, no. The books. So I'll give a little more understanding of Revelation 20. Same scene. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Uh-oh. And another book was opened. Isn't that an interesting statement? You have the books, the law and the prophets, and then you have another book. And he makes mention of that. And another book was opened. What, what book is that? And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. So if you open up the books of the law and the prophets and you make the statement, how do you stand? How do you fare? They were judged by what was in those books. And every single one of us will be found guilty. However, that's not the end of the story. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Listen to this line. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's one means of salvation, and it's found in the book of life. It's another book. That other book has been entrusted to us. We'll call it the 24 on the west side of the Jordan. And in it is enunciated the book of life, Jesus Christ. And it enunciates how you enter into that city known as Jesus Christ, Jehovah Shammah. How you find salvation, how the gates unlock. It is found in that book, and if you believe, and if you come unto that book of life, 
You live. Your name is written in Christ Jesus, for he is that book. The open books, the writings of God, the old, the law, and the prophets. Written by the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. It's a book written by God. And then there's the new. It's the second, just as Joshua is the second. He's the one that follows. He's the new, the life of Jesus, the covenant, the new covenant in his blood. There's an old covenant written in tablets of stone, and there's a new covenant written in the hearts of the believer. We, when we turn in faith unto Jesus Christ, are written in Christ Jesus. Our names are found in that book. And that book is a person. He's a living book. The greater testament, the greater book, not written in stone but in a human body. Isn't that a strange thought of being written in a human body? For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone but in fleshy tables of the heart. You know how the Old Testament starts? It starts with these words. Well, actually, after the first four chapters are done. And it begins this whole journey of the declarations. And it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the New Testament, he is known as the old man. And we have inherited his disposition. And his disposition deserves death. The Old Testament, all the way up to the 12 minor prophets, unto the silence after the book of Malachi, leaves us with nothing more than the book of the generations of Adam. But how does the New Testament start? Matthew 1, 1. This is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. This is the book of life. This is the book that when you're found in this book, when you believe the words of this book, it unlocks all that is before it. And you will now understand, we do not cut our Bibles in half and tote around a New Testament. The New Testament has validity because Moses and Elijah testified to it. The 24 elders say, that's it. If Jesus doesn't match what the 24 elders saw, he is not the Messiah. But what if he does? If he does, the Jordan River parts. Luke 4. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Listen to this. This is an amazing story. And he stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isn't this an interesting thought to think of God Almighty, the word of God made flesh, with the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And I skipped over that, but it's... That's not the important part. Here's what I want to have you focus. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this is what he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I am he. I am. That is amazing. By the way, they didn't take it so kindly. The Lamb's book of life, the word of God, the living book, the living epistle. He is the book of life. It's called the book of the living in Psalm 69, the book in Daniel, the book of life in Revelation, the book of, listen to this title, the book of, the, of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's that book. You know what you were seeing, 24 elders in the midst of the throne? I got a whole book that will clarify for you what that was. 
His name is Jesus. And this is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. This is it. That's actually the name. The book of life from the foundation of the world. The Lamb's book of life. The book of life. Isn't that appropriately named? Wait a minute. It was a lamb. And he appeared as if he were slain. This all makes sense now. This all makes sense. When David's writing Psalm 22, he was looking into something, but it wasn't him. I am a worm and no man. They're, they're mocking me. They're ridiculing me. They pierce my hands and my feet. My mouth is dry. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is as wax inside of me. They cast lots for my clothing and divide it. It's the lamb. It's him. It's him. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not, says Jesus unto his disciples, who were very excited after going out into all the countryside and being able to have power to cast out spirits and heal people. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And the term, the euphemism in the New Testament for heaven is actually the kingdom of God. It's actually Jehovah. It's actually, the, it's a replacement for Jehovah's because they wouldn't speak the unspeakable name. Your names are written in Jehovah. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Elders around the throne, but where are the believers? We are in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God in the midst of the throne. That is something amazing and very, very hard to comprehend. So you say that you're the Messiah. Prove it. Take this key and stick it into the lock of that gate, and you will see. No one can unlock that gate. Stick me into that lock, and you will see that the gate will open. But no one could fulfill all these prophecies. There has to be two different messiahs. It is impossible that one messiah could do all that. Stick me into the lock and you will see that I unlock the book. And he did. Jesus said at the Last Supper, I tell you beforehand that when it happens, you might believe. What did he do? 24 elders. He told them. He says, this will happen. They didn't understand it. But when it came, there is belief. There is faith. Because he did as he said he would do. So you say that you bear the authority of the Messiah. You could say unto the prophets. You could say unto the 24 witnesses or the 24 elders on the west side of the Jordan. So you say you bear the authority of the Messiah. Prove it. Take this key, this gospel that I give you, this understanding of that lamb slain in the midst of the throne, Stick it into the lock of that gate, and you will see. What I teach is not errant, heretical doctrine, but it's actually everything the elders saw. Everything will match. Test us against the Old Testament. We do not ask you to throw out the 24 elders, for Jesus has fulfilled the 24 elders, and he's only handed to us that message. He left us the key so that we could hand it to you, so that you could now no longer have a veil before your eyes, but that you could see, and the gate would be unlocked. 
The mystery hidden for ages and generations has been entrusted to us. And our words will open the eyes of the blind and make the lame walk and cause the deaf to hear. Our words will form the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem, will cause the twelve sealed gates to open unto the nations. Isaiah 53, the closed gates opened. Do you remember Philip and the Ethiopian? And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. These are those that were entrusted with the key. He says, Go, go, go. And he tells Philip exactly where to go, which is the desert. And he arose and went. He went to someone who's in the desert. Isn't that just an amazing thought? And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He's a Jew. He's a Jew in the desert. Philip is sent to him in the desert. And it says, when he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, listen to this, this is the new covenant talking to the old. Understandest thou what thou readest? Now, I know we probably wouldn't say it with a yusts on the end. And he said, how can I? The gate is locked. How can I except some man should guide me? Is there anyone who can break the seals? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before her shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? Who can understand such a mystery? What's interesting is you know what that is. You see, the elders sit around and they can't see. The elders say to Philip, come up here and sit with me and give me understanding. You see that lamb in the midst of the throne. The 24 sit with the 24 around that throne and they say, you see that lamb in the midst of the throne? Yes. I've wondered what that was. You see that side, that, that piercing of his side. Yes, I've wondered what that was. Do you wonder what this is or do you have the key? The man, the Jew in the wilderness, or the Jew in the desert didn't understand. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man. Listen to what Philip does. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the, that same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. What did he preach? Jesus. What does the New Testament preach? Jesus. What does the Old Testament preach? Jesus. The eunuch had it the whole time. He just didn't yet understand it. What did he need? He needed the 24 on the west side of the Jordan. The 24 on the west side of the Jordan sit down in those seats with the 24, and they cause the 24 to be understood. Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and they, then opened he their understanding. Jesus opened he, the Jews' understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, the 24 on the east side. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? I've been there the whole time, says Jesus, the witness of the 24. 
Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I am the book of life. Do you recognize me? I'm the one that the 24 have shown you. And they missed it. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Brace yourselves. For he wrote of me. Whoa. The chariot of the gospel. Many of you in here have heard of the chariot of the cherubim. Have I given that message? Yes, I gave that message. Which is the throne room of God literally carried by four cherubim. And it comes mobile down to this earth. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. But in a strange way, we have an inverse of that. If you look at these chariots or these cherubim as the grace of God, the enabling power, the ones that actually do this work of Jehovah, they're carrying out his work. What you see is the grace of God is how we get there now. Not how that throne comes here. That throne came down and it was an operation of grace. But what does the New Testament witness say? It says, come on, get up on this chariot, this grace, and you will find that you will be taken into the very throne room of grace. You will be taken where the 24 elders sit. The chariot of the gospel. Well, we'll call it the Bible. It's law and it's grace. You know why we understand grace? is because of the law. You see, we understand it as 66 books, but you could just as easily understand it as 48. It's the layering of 24 witnesses, 24 seats, a chair, and an elder. A foundation that causes that elder to now make sense. There's 48 things that are witnessing. It's law and it's grace. It's the 24 elders and the 24 wings. One of the other things I love about the, the cherubim or the seraphim, whichever one they are, I don't think that's what matters in this whole schematic of who in the world are those living creatures. However, they have eyes all over them and they have wings. There's four of them, just like there's four gospels. And they each have six wings, 24. There's four, and yet out of those four come 24 elders. Come 24, but they're not elders, they're, they're wings, because the new covenant is about going. The New Testament is about taking that which was in the old, revealed in Jesus Christ, and going and taking the land. It's 24. It's the up-close and intimate view of the glory of God. Can you get a more close view? The Bible literally says, sit here. It's the best seat in heaven. You got a seat right there, staring up at the glory of God. The same vision that Moses had, you get to see. I mean, as far as anything is concerned, that is amazing. And it's written down in a book so that you would believe. Some of you say, I need to put my finger in his wounds. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen in that fashion but who see with the eyes of faith. It's the best seed in heaven. It's seen through the eyes of the 24 elders and witnessing the power of God for ourselves. It's the clear and unveiled picture of the lamb who was slain in the midst of his throne. Do you see it? Do you see the cross? Do you see Jesus and him crucified? Do you see the lamb in the midst of the throne? Do you see it? It's the vantage point. What is the Bible? It's the vantage point of the 24 elders around the throne. 
with the many eyewitness of the four creatures and their 24 wings that empower us to carry the good news into all the world. So one of the ways, whether or not I could actually validate this one yet, is if you look at that 24, the 24 wings in the midst of the throne, being the gospel. The gospel. The elders sit around the outside. They're the witness. But then you have the 24 wings of the gospel. And it's in the midst of the throne. It is that which takes us, not to just view from the outer ring, but into the very heart of God. They are in the midst of the throne. And what's amazing is they speak first of the praises of God, and then the elders repeat. They speak first, yet they appear to be second. Didn't the gospel come second? No, the grace of God has always been there. But we were cut off because of sin. The law revealed sin. Therefore, we were able to see that lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. And we behold, he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.